Apple. Welcome to Project Echo, University of Melbourne Hub Adolescent Mental Health Network Series 3, Session 4. And I'd like to acknowledge the support of Victorian Government for the production of this series. It's Tuesday, 23rd of August, 2022, and this session's titled Sleep in Teens, or maybe we could say just have a good night's sleep. And um, I just love that pooch. He's so cute. This term, we are focusing on the foundations of good health. Our last session focused on disordered eating, and in this session, we'll explore the common presentation of disordered sleep. It's such a common presentation to primary care and perhaps even more common in teens presenting to the DIS clinic post-pandemic lockdown. I don't know, what do you guys think? Are you seeing more sleep issues? Um, I'm keen to hear your reflections. Whether it's presenting issue or something that we pick up on our comprehensive screen through our heads assessment or the ways of inquiry, I think many of us are familiar with working with this problem. But how do we quantify this issue in our assessment phase? How much sleep is enough sleep and does quality matter? And how do we kind of really grade and assess this? When can we simply blame poor habits? And when do we need to pay special attention to warning signs or red flags, um, or corroborative histories and, and longitudinal histories? What are the principles of good management in primary care and with our allied health teams? And when do we need to refer for investigations and or management um, to specialist services? Our didactic will focus on many of these questions tonight and we'll be putting some of these principles and skills uh, into practice through our case discussion. So let's get underway. Thanks, Bianca. Harriet Hiscock, paediatrician, been at the kids for a long time, but actually my passion is um, around uh, new models of care and how do I work with GPs maternal child health nurses, school nurses, et cetera. So a lot of the research I've done um, is out in, of the hospital setting in the community, a lot of it with Lena particularly as well. But in my earlier life, I did I ran a lot of sleep trials, so sleep trials in babies with mums and the impact on postnatal depression, sleep trials in um, school-age kids and in kids with ADHD and in kids with autism. So I'm going to take you through, I've been given more than 15 minutes by Bianca to really take you through the science of sleep, the common sleep problems and the evidence-based approaches to them. Um, but I think your case is great, Ros, too, because that brings up another issue and another evidence-based approach that we can talk about. So next slide, please. So I will do an overview of um, the basic science of sleep, common problems, the issue of technology use and, and what it does with melatonin, which I'm sure you'll all be extremely familiar with, management options and some resources as well. Next slide, please. So we all know that sleep is really important for all these sorts of things. I guess what teenagers don't know, and I think the hardest thing with teenagers and sleep is motivating them to change their sleep and to stay off their devices, which are often part of the problem. So some of them do care about learning. Some of them do care about brain maturation and memory consolidation or maybe performing better the next day in sport or something. So having that sort of basic um, understanding of how important sleep is and how it contributes to all of these um, processes in our body at a very you know basic level to be able to talk to teenagers about can be helpful. Next slide, please. There's really two distinct systems of sleep when we do fall asleep. There's um, your REM or light or rapid eye movement sleep and your deep or non-rapid eye movement sleep, non-REM sleep. And actually these patterns start to emerge from three months of age in babies in the womb, but of course become more defined um, as, as the child is born and they grow. Next slide, please. So this is just um, data showing... Um, 
from a big US study showing not only total sleep time, but how the proportion of REM versus non-REM sleep changes over time. Probably less relevant for the high school kids, but certainly I see a lot of younger kids and the parents tell me, oh, they're a really restless sleeper when they're sleeping in bed with them. But actually it's because children have more REM sleep compared to non-REM sleep um, than adults do. And often this restlessness is probably just um, normal physiological um, sleep. Next slide, please. This is the really basic REM, non-REM diagram I draw with all the kids that I see and parents. So, you know, we start off the night awake. Um, we go into our light sleep or REM sleep, and then we go into deep or non-REM sleep. And it takes at least 20 or 30 minutes to fall into that deep sleep. So by definition, insomnia is taking more than 30 minutes to fall asleep. Or the technical jargon is your sleep onset latency is greater than 30 minutes. Then you, um, we tend to stay in deep sleep for the first three hours or so at the start of um, the night. And then we come up into light sleep go back into deep sleep, come up into light sleep, go back into deep sleep. And we keep cycling like that throughout the night until we wake up in the morning. Um, next slide, please. In deep sleep, we can move around. Um, it's mostly in the first half of the night, as I showed you, and there's a low level of brain activity. Next slide, please. Um, in our light sleep, um, we actually rouse and can wake. And if things aren't quite to our liking, we might wake up completely. So if you go to sleep with a pillow under your head at the start of the night, and I come in during your deep sleep and come and steal your pillow, when you wake up naturally, you'll come up to your light sleep. When you wake up completely and there's no pillow there, you'll wake up and you'll find that pillow. And it's not until you've got that pillow and put it under your head that you'll go back to sleep again. So that's called a sleep association or a sleep cue. And often when you see um, kids who wake a lot over the um, during the night, it's really important to circle back to the start of the night to understand how did they get to sleep? Were they listening to music? Were they watching something? Um, and if for some, probably not your age group, maybe there might be some who still have mum or dad next to them um, as they fall asleep. And if that sleep association or sleep cue isn't there when they naturally wake from their light sleep overnight, they're going to struggle to get back to sleep. Next slide, please. So in light sleep, we actually have high level of brain activity. Our muscles are paralyzed, so we don't act out our dreams. Um, and this is mostly in the latter half of the night when we have that, that dreaming period and our REM sleep. Next slide, please. So I guess in terms of um, that's a sort of basics of overview of the physiology of sleep, but it's it's important to understand that it's regulated by two systems. And one's the homeostatic um, system, and the other one is our circadian um, rhythm or body clock. Next slide, please. And the homeostatic um, regulation is really our drive to go to sleep. So if you have poor sleep quality or not enough of it, you often feel tired, and then you have an increased drive to get to sleep. Um, and sometimes you'll see in teenagers that, um, particularly if they're not going to school and they're not engaging in any structure, is that they might nap in the afternoon because if they've been up the night before gaming or whatever else they've been doing, they nap in the afternoon. And that is the worst thing they can do because that reduces their homeostatic drive to go to sleep the next that, that night. And you end up in this cycle of going to bed late, waking up late, napping in the afternoon, and that feeds into the next day. Does that make sense? So it's actually stopping them 
napping is really important. Next slide, please. Obviously, circadian um, rhythm, our body clock is really important. We have some natural dips or troughs. Late afternoon is one, and that's when we reach for, you know, our tea or coffee or a chocolate bar. That's really common. Middle of the night is um, another trough, and that's good because that's when we often feel most sleepy. There's also two circadian peaks. One is early morning. And that's, you know, that's uncommon in teenagers. Sometimes we see it in primary school kids who just wake at 5 or 5.30 in the morning and want to start the day. But it's also in the evening and that's when kids can get a second wind because there's actually a, a natural circadian peak then. Next slide, please. Um, and so this circadian rhythm is really maintained, you know, internally but also externally by our environment. And the biggest... Um, driver of that is is light and dark and obviously melatonin you know released from our pineal gland as our sort of sleep hormone it was released when it's dark um, but timing of meals alarm clock schedule activities all play a part in regulating our circadian rhythm and our body temperature drops at night which also helps us go to sleep Anything that emits blue light from a screen blocks melatonin, so that stops um, us going to sleep or, or a teenager going to sleep. Next slide. So how much sleep should kids be sleeping? This is a question I get a lot, and this is data from the National Sleep Foundation um, and their recommended time durations. But to me, it's more important to have good sleep quality than, than duration. So, you know, they say for teenagers, they should be sleeping eight to 10 hours a night, but we know most children in Western countries are often sleeping less than that. Next slide, please. So in terms of what happens with adolescent sleep, um, there's some really normal physiological changes. So in addition to um, slowly reducing that REM sleep over time that I showed you earlier on, they get a shift in their circadian rhythm. So they naturally want to go to sleep later and wake up later. And unfortunately, in Australia, our school times don't take account of this. And we people have dubbed this a, a generation of adolescents with chronic social jet lag. Um, there's good evidence in adolescents that reduced sleep duration is associated with increased anger, depression and anxiety symptoms, daytime sleepiness, caffeine consumption and car accidents. And there's also evidence that if you can shift school times and have them start 30 to 60 minutes later, you can see improvements in all of these things. That happens in America. So if you live in Providence, Rhode Island, where one of the main sleep researchers is in the US, you'll start school at 10 a.m., not 8.30 a.m. But I don't think we'll get it over the line in Australia. <laughs> Next slide, please. Um, so the other changes that are normal in adolescent and adolescent sleep is that homeostatic drive actually decreases um, at bedtime around the age of puberty when, when adolescents go into puberty. So this also leads to longer periods of evening um, wakefulness. And I don't know if you see any kids with ADHD, but kids with ADHD um, often have problems getting to sleep. And that is um, for a number of reasons that actually have been shown genetically to have a sort of eveningness preference. Um, they may have comorbid conditions like anxiety or oppositional defiant disorder or autism, um, which are all associated with sleep issues, or it may be an issue with their stimulant medication. And because that's that wears off at the end of the day, they can get a rebound in their ADHD symptoms and that can be associated with insomnia. Next slide. 
So technology use and sleep is a big issue in um, teenagers, of course. Most of the studies are really looking at associations because, as you can imagine, it would be incredibly hard to do a randomised controlled trial of randomising adolescents to using technology or not just before sleep because the control group's not going to comply. So this is data from a systematic review um, published last year in BMC Public Health that's really um, showing strong associations between increased screen time and problems with falling asleep, poor sleep quality, um, and reduced sleep duration. Next slide, please. I don't think that'll be news to any of us. And so really, I think, you know, it's it's really hard for parents and it's really hard for kids because all their homework now is done on laptops and other devices. Um, and there are um, blue light filters that they can put on this device to try and um, reduce the amount of um, blue light coming out and blocking the melatonin. Um, how how long should they switch off devices before bedtime? There's actually really little data on this. I always say one hour, knowing that it'll probably be half an hour best before bedtime that they'll switch off. Next slide, please. So in terms of sleep problems in kids, we... we very broadly um, classify them as behavioural or medical. And within behavioural, there's problems getting to sleep, problems waking overnight and early morning waking, although that's less of an issue in, in children. Uh, so teens, I'm not really going to talk about the medical issues. I'm going to focus more on the behavioural things, although I will mention restless legs syndrome. Next slide, please. So these are the common behavioural sleep problems. And I think in, children, in teenagers, um, you'll see a lot of the bottom right, the delayed sleep phase, that the teenagers falling asleep late and waking late in the morning. You'll probably see a lot of anxiety, the one in the middle, and anxiety-related insomnia. But there is a small group um, up top left of a of kids who can't get to sleep. They're not worried about anything. Um, they're not coming in and out of their room. They don't need mum or dad there. They just can't get to sleep. And they're probably the ones who don't have enough melatonin that their bodies are making and it's worth um, treating them with melatonin. Next slide, please. So um, I think we just talked about that one. Next one, um, let's think about Ed. So, you know, he's a 12-year-old boy who doesn't go to sleep until midnight. His parents have to wake him up every morning to get him to school. If it's the weekend, he'll sleep into 11 a.m. He has a phone and an iPad in his room. So what else do you think is happening and what could you do? What's going on for him? Harriet, I'm going to... Yeah, um, I just keep going. Facilitator, yep. and yeah, that's right. Because we'll we'll really crack into this type of stuff with um, okay. Yoz's case. So sorry, I'm sorry. Um, no, keep going. Keep going. Pick up on those ones. Yep. Um. Okay. Yeah. So that I mean, he's clearly have a delayed sleep phase, and we'll get back to the treatment of that in a minute. Um, I think for almost all kids that you see with sleep issues check what's happening with their this what we call sleep hygiene or um, you know good sleep patterns and this is how to set up to go to sleep so keeping the bedroom a media free zone having a set bedtime and sticking to it calm bedtime routine not things that hype them up reading draw, drawing talking instead avoiding caffeine again it's really hard to find information of when do you stop the caffeine? I say after 3 p.m., but there's no great data for that. And just remember that caffeine obviously is in energy drinks, but it's also in chocolate bar and it's actually also in Milo, which is always a bit surprising to me. 
Um, and then trying to set their wake time in the morning um, to really give them that structure. So really trying not to let them sleep in too much um, because that will reduce their homeostatic drive to go to sleep the following night. If they're sleeping in and there's no sleep issues, you don't need to change that. I'm just talking about kids who have sleep problems. Next slide, please. So the other thing I often do, um, so that the behavioural sleep hygiene is really important. The other thing when I'm trying to get a teenager to change sleep is consider writing a contract between myself and the teenager and the parent if the parent's there. And I know that's not always the case for you, but um, maybe it says he'll turn off his phone one hour before bedtime and his parents say they'll stop nagging him about the mess in his room. So something he cares about, something... Um, that you know will make a difference to his sleep and, and you sign off on that contract and get them back and review that again in a couple of weeks' time. Next slide, please. So um, in terms of um, the edge, you know, we would negotiate, with, we'd get that good sleep hygiene, we'd try and get the electronics turned off or out of his room at least an hour before the desired bedtime. We might think of consequences if he refuses them, then he might lose his electronics for 24 hours, for example. The parents have got to be able to follow through on that. Um, and you'd set the wake-up time every weekday, for example, 7am, and you'd open the curtain or blinds to let the light in and switch off the melatonin to regulate that. And sometimes parents will say to me, well, you know, I'm not going to go in and open up his rooms, you know, his blinds, you know, I'm asleep at that time. So he can go to sleep with his blinds open so that the sunlight comes up and switches off the melatonin. Next slide, please. Um, if if a young person is taking more than 30 minutes to, to um, between going to bed and falling asleep, or particularly if, you know, this is a kid who might go to bed at nine o'clock at night but doesn't fall asleep till, you know, 11, then we use a technique called bedtime fading because in the between that 9 p.m. and 11 p.m., there can be a lot of arguments between the young person and their parents. So we temporarily set their bedtime late and bring it forward by 15 minutes every couple of nights. So if they're going to bed at nine, but not falling asleep till 11 p.m., then I would say go to sleep at quarter to 11 for two nights, 10.30 uh, p.m. for the next two nights, quarter past 10 for the next two nights, and bring it forward. And it's a you are adjusting their circadian rhythm and that delayed sleep phase. And it's a bit like adjusting to jet lag. You can't tell a kid who's used to falling asleep at 11 o'clock at night to go to sleep at nine o'clock. You have to do it slowly. And of course, you avoid the weekend sleep in and naps um, as well. Next slide, please. So that's a sort of um, that was thinking about Ed there. Another common presentation really is anxiety and, and kids getting to bed, lying in um, bed, worrying about stuff and they just can't get to sleep. And, you know, it's sometimes hard to get information out of teens about they're worried about what they might be worried about. I often draw a very simple happiness scale from one to 10, where one out of 10 is um, school is awful. I hate it. It's terrible. 10 out of 10 is school is so good. I want to be there on the weekend. I want to go on Saturday and Sunday. And then I give them three wishes to make it better. And those three wishes can often tell me um, if they say I want, you know, less homework, more chips, more, more playtime, that's a normal kid. But if they start saying maths is really hard 
or I want someone to stop bullying me, then you start to, you know, unpick what might be causing their anxiety. And I do that for home and I do that for school. You'll probably all know about worry books where um, someone can write or draw down their worries and shut them on the book until the next morning. And um, also I use relaxation and visual imagery um, techniques with anxious teenagers, but I tell them to use it um, and practice it after school, not just before bedtime. Because if they do it before bedtime and it doesn't work, then they get more anxious. So it's actually practicing it um, after school. And then what they do is they get the hang of it and then they start to use it before bedtime. And again, if they're taking an hour or more, for example, to fall asleep, I would use these techniques in conjunction with that bedtime fading to limit the amount of time that that adolescent spends in bed worrying. These sorts of things, I always get kids back after a couple of weeks if I can to see how things are going. And usually if it's not improving, that's a trigger to think about either melatonin or a referral. Next slide, please. Um, just to say there's been some trials in anxiety-related insomnia in teenagers where they've looked at things like mindfulness um, and breath-based mindfulness versus a technique called constructive worry where you set aside 15 minutes of the day to worry, um, but not just before bedtime. And certainly mindfulness um, has been shown to reduce reduce the time it takes for adolescents to get to sleep um, relative to the constructive worry or just a control group with no interventions. Next slide, please. Um, so rewards, um, you know, for the, we do use rewards um, over a couple of weeks. You need to think about something the teenager cares about. Younger teenagers might care about money, so I'll often use a raffle ticket as a reward. So if you can turn off your device and get into bed without your device, you get a raffle ticket the next morning. It might be worth 50 cents and they get to cash it in at the end of the week. Um, the novelty definitely fades after two weeks, but you hope you've shifted to some of the desired behaviour by then. Um, true insomnia is the next sort of um, thing where an adolescent just lies there, they're not worried, they're not coming out of their room, um, they're not needing someone to go to sleep. And as I said before, try the good sleep hygiene practices in combination with the bedtime fading. But if that's not um, working after a couple of weeks, get them back and look at a trial of melatonin. Um, melatonin, if it's going to work, I find just works in the first few nights. It works really well. Um, you don't need a sort of lead-in period. Next slide. Restless legs, I'll just really briefly mention because I think we often don't ask enough about it. This is um, a feeling like ants crawling up the legs or pins and needles. And because of that feeling, the adolescent moves their legs to make them feel better. So the movement relieves those sensations. You need to check their iron level and their ferritin level. And um, certainly if they have a ferritin um, under um, 75 micrograms per litre, so it's, it's still within the normal range, but it's low, then you treat them as if they're iron deficient because um, that's been shown to improve restless leg syndrome after doing that for um, three months. Yep, so the do I answer my questions as I go, Bianca? At the end? <laughs> no, I'm quite bossy, aren't I? Sorry. Pavlovian. Um, well, I was going to keep sorry, going. Do you, do you, I do have a slide do you on, have a slide on melatonin? Yep. yep. Leave it yep. then. Yep. Yep. Keep going. Sorry, Emery. There we go. 
this is answering your question. Only helps to get to sleep. It doesn't actually help with the overnight waking. You give 60 minutes before the desired bedtime and there's the dosage for primary and school-aged kids. Um, a lot of my families get it online. It's much cheaper than going through a compounding um, pharmacy. Obviously, avoid the homeopathic versions because they really don't have melatonin in them. Um, Cicadin is available now off the PBS, just over the counter, but it's off-label in young people because it's really only licensed for older adults. Next slide, please. So... I guess when to refer is when you've tried the things with the good sleep hygiene, you've tried the relevant behavioural strategy. If it's a problem getting to sleep um, and, and uh, those things haven't worked, then you've tried melatonin, but you get them back and it's still not working, then that's when I think you need to refer and I'll tell you where to refer to. Um, in terms of medical causes, um, you know, Obstructive sleep apnea still happens in teenagers, of course. It's more, more common in primary school age kids. Um, but that is where they're snoring every night, having periods of, you know, not breathing, gasping, etc. Um, they need to be seen by a sleep service because they'll need um, overnight oximetry and some assessments. Um, suspected, if you're suspecting more complex conditions like narcolepsy, et cetera, that, that of course needs to be referred as well. Next slide, please. So there are some resources. Um, the Raising Children Network has some resources around teenage sleep, as does the Sleep Health Foundation and the podcast that you mentioned there um, as well, Bianca. Next slide, please. If you go to the Sleep Health Foundation, and that's the URL on the right, um, you can see there's a whole lot of fact sheets and there are fact sheets for teenagers. I know it's a little bit hard to see, but the Sleep Health Foundation is sort of Australia's peak body for education around sleep. Next slide, please. Um, on the Sleep Health Foundation um, website, there is a specific program called Sleep Shack for teen sleep. And this is supported by a group of psychologists. I haven't used it myself, but to get onto the Sleep Health Foundation website, you have to be evidence-based and, and um, have some, um, you know, some level of rigour to what you're doing. This is, um, it's an online support program by the psychologist. It costs $240. It's not going to be for every family. Um, the teenager, you know, completes um, a survey and a sleep log and is supported through changing their sleep over a period of weeks. Next slide, please. There are accredited sleep clinics. Um, if you are suspecting a um, particularly a medical problem, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, narcolepsy, a nocturnal seizure. Um, and if you go to that web URL on the right, um, you can actually filter for Victoria and then check the listing and you can type in pediatric and it will come up with places like the Royal Melbourne Hospital because they accept patients over 15 years in their sleep services, for example. Next slide, please. I think we might be getting close to the end. Um, this is a project that I'm doing with my colleague, um, Associate Professor Emma Shabiris, who's a psychologist from Deakin Uni. And this will be looking at adapting one of our sleep interventions that we've done in primary school age kids with ADHD to see if it can help behavioural sleep problems in um, adolescents with ADHD. So that um, 
that they can scan that QR code and for um, find out more. So we're looking to recruit um, actually next year starting um, adolescents age 13 to 16 with ADHD who are having behavioural sleep issues.